Well, it's been great to be with you guys over the last four weeks. We're going to conclude our series this morning on finding hope in the midst of the struggles of life. We're going to look at how we find hope in the midst of defeat and bad habits and addictions. And for me, this is a very personal topic because I am an addict. And it was actually my son who pointed it out to me a couple of weeks ago. We were getting ready for bed and sitting together on the couch, kind of getting him into his, his routine um, to go to sleep. And, and I was with my son, but I was also not with my son because I was lost on my phone checking Facebook or Twitter or email, something, I don't remember which, but I wasn't paying attention to him, and Luke didn't like that. And my son, Luke, he's eight years old, and um, he doesn't ever hide what he feels, never. And so he felt frustrated in that moment, so he immediately jumped in my lap, pushed my phone down, grabbed my cheeks, looked me in the eyes, and said, Daddy, pay attention to me and put your phone away. And that was actually very good for me. I needed that brutal honesty. I needed that moment of conviction. Actually, over the last couple months, I've been trying to work on this bad habit in my life that when my kids are around, I'm looking at my phone. I don't want to do that. But as I've been working on that bad habit over the last couple months, it has brought to my mind this question, why is it that we struggle so much to not do things that we know are bad for us? Because let's be honest, we know that all this time we spend on our cell phones, especially when our kids are around, it's probably not good for us. It's so common these days that doctors have actually given it a name. It's called nomophobia. It is that feeling you get in the pit of your stomach when you can't find your phone. Or when you have not checked your phone in three hours and wonder what messages you have gotten. If you feel anxiety in that moment, that's nomophobia. You are an addict. And probably almost all of us are, and yet we wink at it. We don't really think it's that big a deal. Doctors are actually saying that cell phones are the cigarettes of the modern age. It's an addiction we all have and just wink at, even though we know it's really not good for us or our kids or our relationships. So why is it so hard for us to put it down? when we know that it's not good for us. Let's broaden the question. Why is it so hard for us to stop doing things we know are bad for us? Maybe for you, it's not a cell phone issue. Maybe for you, it's overeating. You desperately desire to eat less, but you keep eating too much and putting on weight. Maybe it's alcohol. You, you want to stop drinking to excess, but you just keep doing it and waking up with a hangover. Maybe for you, it's pornography. You feel incredibly guilty every time you look. You want to stop doing that, but you keep doing it over and over. Maybe for you, it's criticism. You you just keep criticizing people and you feel horrible for the words coming out of your mouth, but you can't seem to stop them. Why is that? Why can't we stop doing things that are bad for us? And, And especially us who know Jesus. If you've trusted in Jesus, you have God living inside of you. The Holy Spirit, God Almighty, infinite power lives inside of you. So why is it so hard for us Christians to stop doing things we know are bad for us? Well, that's our topic this morning. We're going to talk about bad habits and addictions, why they're so powerful in our lives, and how we can find hope in the midst of them. Let me give you a roadmap. Here's where we're going. We're going to start by talking about the good mechanism of habits that God designed into your body. 
Then we'll talk about how sin twists that good thing and uses it to form destructive addictions in your life. Then we will talk about the two most significant passages in the Bible about habits and addictions so that you can understand how God sees habits and addictions at work in your life. And then finally, I will give you four practical steps for how you can begin to build good new habits in your life and turn away from bad habits and addictions. Okay, so that's where we're headed. Let's start with the good news. God gave you a gift you may not be aware of. Your ability to form habits is actually a gift from God. Now, what is a habit? A habit is simply a choice that has become automatic because you've done it repeatedly. If you think about it, most of the things that you think and say and do in a given day are automatic. You don't have to think consciously about them. You just do them by habit. And, and that ability to form habits allows you to live a human life. It allows you to make it through life successfully. Imagine for a moment, what would life be like if you couldn't form habits? Think about brushing your teeth if it wasn't a habit. You would actually have to consciously think left, right, left, right, left, right, up, down, up, down, spit. Over and over again, you would have to think about what you're doing or eating. What, what if eating wasn't a habit? You would have to think, chew, 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 switch says, chew, 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 swallow, too soon, chew, chew, chew. You'd have to think about it constantly. In other words, you could not function as a human being if you could not form habits. And so God gave you this gift of habits to automate routine behavior so that you can spend your thought processes on better things. Charles Duhigg wrote a great book called The Power of Habit. I highly recommend it. In it, he says, habits emerge because the brain is constantly looking for ways to save effort. Left to its own devices, the brain will try to make almost any routine into a habit. So God designed your brain where it makes these habits to save you time, to make your life more efficient so your brain can move on to higher levels of thinking. In other words, the fact that you can form a habit out of eating is why you can have a significant conversation with a friend over lunch. You don't have to be thinking about chewing your food. It just happens on its own, and you can live a fully human existence. So this habit-forming mechanism that God designed into your brain to automate routine behaviors is a very good gift that allows you to live life to its fullest. Unfortunately, As with every good gift God designed into your body, it has been broken by sin. And so this good habit-forming mechanism can be directed by sin into a destructive thing we call addiction. If if habits automate behavior, well then what if the particular behavior is a sinful behavior? What's going to happen over time? That sinful behavior is going to come automatic. You're going to give in to sin without even thinking about it. And the more you give in, the more it's going to grow and grow and power over you. And so when we look at how habits work, if it's a habit in a sinful direction, it can become an addiction that can destroy us. Again, Charles Duhigg talks about addiction. He says, particularly strong habits produce addiction-like reactions so that wanting evolves into obsessive craving that can force our brains into autopilot even in the face of strong disincentives, including the loss of reputation, job, home, and family. We've all seen that. 
People give into a bad choice today, and then they do it tomorrow, and then they do it the next day, and before long it's become this powerful habit in their life that continues to grow until it's an addiction that seems to control them. And they're not making logical choices anymore. They're being foolish, and they can't see it, and it ends up destroying them. That's addiction. It is that good habit-forming mechanism God gave you as a gift, twisted by sin and used for your destruction. So let's talk about addiction. Let's define it. Medically speaking, what is an addiction? Well, it's a chronic brain disease that is progressive, meaning it will grow worse with time if left untreated, and can be fatal. It's important to understand, medically speaking, an addiction is a disease. It's not just bad behavior. It's an actual disease of the brain. You have changed the chemistry in your brain. It is getting worse and worse, leading you down a path that ends in death. Now, I I think the more helpful definition is probably a practical definition. So this is what addiction is medically. Here's what it looks like practically speaking. I really like this definition. Addiction is simply repetitive behaviors in the face of negative consequences. You keep doing something repeatedly even though it keeps resulting in negative consequences in your life. That idea, I love that definition because it's so broad. It gets us beyond just thinking about addiction through the grid of like drugs, like heroin or cocaine. No, addiction is far bigger than that. Ultimately, anything deeply enjoyable can turn into an addiction. Anything, any negative choice you make that you just keep making and you can't seem to stop making that choice, even when bad things happen, that's grown into an addiction. So this addictive process, anything deeply enjoyable can become an addiction. Why is that? Well, because what's happening is a bad habit you've given into is beginning to play with the reward system God designed into your brain. Some of you know the the medicine, the biology, the anatomy behind this, but God designed a, a system in your brain to make you feel good when you make a good choice. When you make a good choice and experience something pleasurable and wonderful that's good, your your brain releases a tiny bit of dopamine, a neurotransmitter that makes you feel good. The problem is your brain also does it when you make a pleasurable bad choice. So you make a sinful choice that that leads to to a pleasurable experience, whether that's around food or alcohol or drugs or sex or whatever it is. You make a sinful choice and your brain releases a little of that dopamine and it feels good. And what have you just done? You've just trained your brain, just like you train a puppy. You gave a a positive reward for that behavior. What's the puppy going to want to do tomorrow? The same thing. So is your brain. Your brain's going to want that. And and the more you give into it, the more your brain begins to crave. It actually begins to look forward before the dopamine even comes. It's already sweating with excitement over the dopamine that it's about to get. But there's a problem. We talked about how addiction is progressive. Why is it progressive? Because of a thing we call desensitization. Your brain amps down the dopamine just a tiny bit at a time that you get from a given substance or a given experience. So that if you want the same high tomorrow, you need a little bit more of the substance or the experience. And we've all seen that, how addiction is progressive. It grows more and more powerful because we need more and more of the substance or the experience to get the same pleasure from dopamine in our brains. And eventually that addiction grows by tweaking the reward system in our brains until it destroys us. And we don't have to look around very hard to see examples of destructive addiction in our culture. 
So I hope all of you read the news enough to know there is a crisis in America around the use of prescription painkillers, opioids. It's killing people right and left. 42,000 Americans died of opioid overdose in 2016. More people are dying of opioid overdose, overdose than breast cancer. It's killing people right and left. And yet those numbers, 42,000 dying in a year, that's small compared to alcoholism. Currently, alcoholism is killing 88,000 Americans per year. If you look at the statistics, in 2015, 27% of Americans age 18 or older engaged in binge drinking just in the previous month. About a quarter of people are, are binge drinking on a regular basis. The Washington Post said that the prevalence of alcoholism in the United States rose by a shocking 49% in the first decade of the 2000s. So it's actually getting much worse than it used to be. Currently, one in eight American adults now meets the diagnostic criteria for alcoholism. One in eight Americans you see just going through life meets the clinical definition of an alcoholic. It's that common. And yet, as common as that is, that is dwarfed by the number of Americans addicted to things like pornography and digital devices today. Addiction is incredibly prevalent. It's all around us. And the really scary thing is it's all around us in the church too. We are not immune to addiction. Just because you're a Christian, you don't get like an addiction-free card. Now, we are just as vulnerable to it. Why? Because we have the same mechanisms in our brain, too. Same habit-forming, reward-inducing mechanisms in our brain, too. So we are just as prone to addictions as the rest of the world. And so how do we find hope in the midst of bad habits and addiction? How do we find hope to overcome these things? Well, next thing I want to do is I want to share with you the two most important passages in the Bible on the subject of habits and addictions. And I think for most people, they think, well, the Bible doesn't really talk about addiction. Well, you're not going to see that word in the Bible, but it does talk about it, actually. Particularly the Apostle Paul in two passages talked explicitly about what is going on, spiritually speaking, in your body when you give in to a sin over and over again. So I'm going to share a couple passages with you. We're going to start with Romans chapter 6. It begins with a question, verse 15. What then shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? This is a logical question. Okay, if you've been tracking with where Paul would have been in Romans for the last three chapters, he's been proving to us exhaustively that if we have trusted in Jesus as our Savior, we are completely forgiven of every past sin and every future sin. Paul's made crystal clear. There is no sin you could ever commit that you would, that would separate you from the eternal life you have in Jesus. And so, of course, that begs the question, well, if all of my sins, past, present, and future, are already forgiven, then why not enjoy a little sin, right? Why not? Live it up. So Paul gives the answer in the next verse, verse 16. May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves as someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? And Paul's answer is slavery. That's why you should not give in to sin because it results in slavery. Now we have to clarify, what does he mean here? The moment you trusted in Jesus, you were purchased out of sin and now you belong to God. So Paul's not talking about legal slavery. You don't belong to sin anymore. You are a child of God. He's talking about experiential slavery. This is the guy who lives like a slave, even though he no longer is a slave. Paul's point is whatever you give into on a regular basis, 
basis, it will master you. It will have power over you. Whether it owns you or not, it will master you. So you have a choice. Are you going to give in regularly to obedience or give in regularly to sin? Whatever you choose will have power over you. So let's take the sin option. Let's say that day after day after day, you give in to sin. What will the result be? Even as a believer filled with the Holy Spirit, the result will be you have given power in your life to sin. You have allowed sin to master you so that it has become a powerful habit and an addiction in your life that makes it incredibly hard tomorrow not to give in. Okay, now why has that happened? Well, again, that habit-forming mechanism, we know from science that whatever activity you give into repetitively, your brain, in a sense, memorizes that path. Very literally, what's happening, the neurons that connect in your brain to that decision grow stronger. The connections grow stronger. So that tomorrow, it is more natural and more unavoidable to give in again. I like to think of it this way. When I think about what's going on in my brain at a biological level and what Paul's talking about here, I grew up in kind of a country neighborhood. So the houses were kind of spread apart, a lot of wild land. And at the back of our neighborhood, it was all still forest, uncleared. So think thick, dense forest. And my friends and I like to ride our bikes back there and, and make trails through the woods. So how do you make a trail through dense forest? Well, the first day, you sweat a lot. You get cut up, and it's incredibly hard work. You're like picking your way slowly from point A to point B, and you're having to break branches off and move logs out of the way and try to make your way. First day, really hard. Second day, a tiny bit easier. I mean, you're still getting slapped by stuff, and you still got stuff in the way, but you're, kinda, you're starting to move stuff out of the way. Third day, it's getting easier. After a couple of weeks, you have, a, you have a trail, right? After a couple months, it's a big old path. It's easy to walk from point A to point B. That's what happens in your brain. As you make a choice over and over again, that choice is wired into the neural pathways of your brain so that it becomes easier and harder to resist day after day. So if you are giving in to sin day after day, that sin is becoming a bad habit that turns into an addiction that is incredibly hard to resist because it is wired into the chemistry of your brain. So Paul says, if you make that choice, if you keep walking down that path of sin, that sin is going to become stronger and stronger in your life. It's going to become harder and harder to resist. And the result eventually will be death. And I love how Timothy Keller puts this. It, we tend to think of you know, sin leading us to death as only like, well, heroin or cocaine. Tim Keller, no. He says, all sin is addiction. Any sinful choice you make is addictive, whether it's bitterness, whether it's envy, whether it's materialism, whether it's laziness, whether it's impurity. Every sinful action becomes an addiction and every sinful action brings into your life a power that operates exactly like addiction cycles. It becomes stronger and stronger in your life, leading you down a path that will destroy you and everything you care about. And so based on this reality, that's what is going on in your brain when you give in to sin, that that sin is becoming harder and harder to resist, leading you further and further into sin. The result is we have to just tell ourselves once and for all, there are no pet sins in life. There is no okay little sin I can live with. No, no sin is manageable because all sin is inherently addictive. I like to remind myself when I am tempted to give into a sin that feels small, I like to remind myself, well, theologically, what I'm doing is taking a small hit of heroin. Okay, well, compared to some really big sin out there, maybe I'm not shooting up a ton, but I'm shooting up a little. That is what every sin is. You are injecting at least a small amount of heroin into you. 
would you put up with a little bit of heroin? Well, no, you'd recognize that's incredibly dangerous. Even small sins are incredibly dangerous. Why? Because all of them are inherently addictive. That's Paul's point. As believers, we don't get a pass from the habit-forming mechanism God designed into our brains. So whatever we do repetitively will become a habit that will master us. If it's sin, it will lead to addiction that destroys you, and as we said, will lead to death. That's what Paul concludes in verse 16. Now, death here doesn't mean hell. It means death in a very literal sense, and we've all seen that. You give into an addiction long enough, it will kill you. It will destroy your relationships. It will destroy your family. It will destroy everything. So, avoid sin because it leads to bad habits that become addictions that lead to death. However, there is good news. There's another option, right? In this verse, Paul says you can choose instead to give into obedience. If day after day you give into obedience, that obedience grows godly habits that lead to sanctification, to growth and righteousness. Picture that forest again. Well, I didn't have to blaze a path from point A to point B. I could have blazed the path from point A to point C. Let's say point C is a righteous direction. If I blaze that path today, boy, it's, it's hard. New path, hard to cut. But I do it day after day after day. What happens eventually? It's really easy to get from A to C. What just happened? Sanctification. I just wired into my brain a new neural pathway leading in a righteous direction. I built a godly habit that will help me follow God better tomorrow. That's the good news in Romans chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, you can use that gift of a habit-forming mechanism God gave you to grow in righteousness. If you will choose obedience today and tomorrow and the next day, gradually you will build a habit of righteousness that leads to your sanctification. So, Romans 6, what is Paul telling us? Simple. As a Christian, you don't get a pass to escape from the habit-forming mechanism God designed into your brain. So, make sure whatever you're doing repeatedly is obedient. So, whatever you do repeatedly will master you. Okay, now if all we had is Romans 6, then in this whole habit-forming discussion, it would seem like it's all about our choices. Now, our choices are important, but there's something else going on when you choose obedience. Or to be more accurate, there's someone else going on inside of you to help you obey. And that's what we find in the second passage I want to share with you, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. One of my favorite passages, incredibly practical advice that Paul gives us. It really makes sense of the Christian life. Verse 12 is where we'll start. This is your part in sanctification and growing to be more like Jesus. Here's what you need to do. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation. That doesn't mean earn your salvation. It means you are already saved. So apply your salvation from sin to more and more of your life. Okay, work out that power of salvation more and more in you by obeying. Obey day after day after day, and salvation will take a greater hold of your heart, and you will live more and more like Jesus. That's your part. You got to obey day after day after day. But verse 12 is not the only verse, because it's not just you working. There is someone else working inside of you as you choose obedience. Verse 13, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. God, particularly the God, the Holy Spirit, is inside of you. And as you choose obedience today, God, the Holy Spirit, does some stuff in you. Two things in particular. I want to point both of these out. We're going to start with the second. 
God the Holy Spirit is in you. And what is he doing? He is enabling you to work for his good pleasure. That's just a fancy way of saying he's enabling you to obey today. He is giving you sufficient power to say no to temptation today. What Paul's trying to help us understand is if we are a believer, if you've trusted in Jesus, then sin is never unavoidable for you. It's never inevitable. You can say no to sin at any given moment. Why? Because you have God in you. And God is always stronger than any temptation. And many of you have memorized the verse from 1 Corinthians. It's specifically about that. When you feel tempted, what do you remind yourself? 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. What Paul's telling you is because God lives inside of you, you always have sufficient strength to say no to sin at any given moment. God will empower your obedience if you say yes to him. But here's the great news. He doesn't stop at just empowering your obedience. He does a second thing. In the verse it says, to will. He works in you so that you will to do what pleases him. And will, it's just in the New Testament, it means desire. God is working in you so that you will desire to do what pleases him. And this is incredible. This is the great news, the great hope of Christianity. God is working in you as you obey today to change your desires so you'll want to obey more tomorrow. And I think this is so important for people to recognize. I th- what, do, what does the world in general think about your religion? Just the average person on the street, average American who's not a Christian, what does he or she think about your religion? We think Christianity is a whole bunch of rules to keep you from doing the fun you want to have, right? It's a whole bunch of rules to keep you from enjoying life. Is that correct? No. What is Christianity? It's a promise of transformation, to help you want to do the things that bless you and other people. Right? God doesn't want a life of boring obligation for you. No, he's not, he's not just wanting to, well, I'll empower you to obey today. I know you really want to give in to sin, but I'll just give you strength day after day to say no to what you really want to do. That, God's not content with that. God says, no, as you say yes day after day, I'm going to actually transform your desires so that you begin to want to do the good that I want you to do. That's the beautiful thing about Christianity. God wants your heart. He wants your desires. He wants to mold them and make them. And if you will say yes, day after day after day, God will grow new desires in you. And what exactly is happening? Well, again, let's get back to the biology of it. Think of the forest example. Okay, so let's say that I and my friends spent a whole year creating this path from point A to point B. And it's really easy to get there. I mean, we have cleared everything. It's like walking down a highway through the forest from point A to point B. Problem is, that's a bad way to go. So I'm convicted and I say, I need a new path. I need to go this direction towards point C. So first day, it is hard, isn't it? And I gotta gotta push through that brush. I gotta move those logs out of the way. I'm getting torn up. I really wish I could go this way. It's so much easier, but I push through. And then the next day I wake up and I go back and, and it's still hard, but I do it again. And then the next day I do it again. And the next day I do it again. And the next day I do it again. And after a few weeks of blazing this new good trail, what, what's happened? Well, the new good trail is getting easier and easier and easier to walk. And what's happened to the old trail? You know, you've seen it. Force is growing back, isn't it? Force is closing up over it. That is exactly what happens in your brain. As you choose this new good habit, those neural connections grow stronger. That good habit-forming mechanism God has given you 
begins to automate that good choice you're making. And what happens to that bad direction you used to went, go, that bad habit? Scientists have proven it. Those neural connections, they begin to atrophy. When you don't use a neural connection in your brain, it gradually dies, gradually falls apart. And so that bad habit has less and less power over you as time passes. What a beautiful thing that God, the Holy Spirit inside of you, can use this habit-forming mechanism God designed into the anatomy of your brain to give you not only the power to obey today, but the desire so that day after day, it becomes more enjoyable to say yes to God and easier and easier to say no to sin. That is the incredible hope we have as followers of Jesus Christ. No matter how far you have fallen into bad habits or addictions, there is still hope for you because the Holy Spirit can use the mind God has given you to grow and empower new godly desires that help you grow in righteousness. So that's the hope. That's what we want. Now the last part. What exactly do we need to do this week to help us say no to those sinful habits and yes to new godly righteous habits. I'm going to give you four practical steps. The first one, if you've been paying any attention, you should already know where I'm going to go. You need to talk about it. Addictions will always grow stronger in the dark. If you try to hide them, they will master you. You must bring them out in the light. That's the only way. So bring it out in the light. Talk about your addiction, your bad habit with God. He already knows it, so it's not going to surprise him. Talk about it with other people too. One of the things I'm really jealous for for Grace Bible Church is that we would recognize that we are all broken. We are all addicts. We all have bad habits. I hope we'll get to this point of vulnerability where we'll be willing to admit that to people so that it's easier for us each to admit the bad habits we're struggling with. Now, you don't have to get up and share it with everyone in the room, but you need to share it with someone. Find some person you can be honest and vulnerable about with the bad habits you struggle with. That is the only way you will ever grow in victory over them. You try to keep it hidden, it will master you. Okay, so talk about it with other people. And if it's an addiction that has controlled you for a long period of time, I would encourage you to get involved in a recovery group. A recovery group is where you gather together with other people who have struggled with addiction and found greater victory over it, and they encourage you and show you how to find greater victory over whatever you're struggling with. So there's a lot of great recovery groups in the community. Alcoholics Anonymous, for example, is one that everybody knows about. We have some here at the church as well, so I'll share those with you, but just find one anywhere. One of the ones that we have is called Celebrate Recovery. It meets at the Southwood campus on Tuesday evenings at 6.30, and you gather together for a light dinner and some, refri- and some worship, and then you split up and, and you spend some time in small groups with people who have been through what you're going through and can help you along the way. So you can find an incredible amount of healing there, and then eventually you can grow to where you're helping other people, and as you help other people, you get even better. It's a Celebrate Recovery, an incredible ministry at Grace. It meets every Tuesday night. doesn't matter the weather, doesn't matter the holidays. Every Tuesday night of the year, 6.30 at Southwood. We, that is for everybody college and older, so college freshmen and up. But we recognize bad habits, addictions, hang-ups, they start a lot earlier than college. And so we've also created groups for high schoolers. So for those who are youth, we call it the landing. It also meets Tuesdays at Southwood, 7 p.m. Um, they, meet, they actually have pizza at 6.30 p.m. It's, it's actually for teens of any age, any teenager. Um, we would love to have you out for the landing where you can share in a safe and welcoming environment what you're struggling through and find hope and healing in the midst of it. 
Okay, so join a recovery group where you can get better. It's easy to remember. It's Tuesday night, 6.30 Southwood is where you can find those. Finally, if, if you look at, at your life, you look at what you're struggling with, and right now it just seems to completely own you, especially if it's an addiction that's having a, a serious threat to your safety and your health, I want to encourage you to go talk to an expert. I said that every week. Experts are God's gifts to us. Doctors, counselors, psychiatrists, please go talk to someone who can help you work through this addiction before it kills you and destroys the people you care about. Okay? So we've got to be willing to talk about this. We'll never get better until we're willing to talk about it. So that's step number one. Step number two, find and fill the hole. Here's a quote we think from G.K. Chesterton. We're not exactly sure who said it, but it's a great quote. Everyone who knocks on the door of a brothel is knocking for God. Don't know for sure who said it, but we know it is incredibly profoundly true. Ultimately, when a person gives in to a sin, a destructive sin, a sin that turns into a habit or an addiction, what are they doing? Well, ultimately, they're trying to meet some legitimate need deep down in their soul. And I've seen that time and time again in the counseling that I've done for people struggling with bad habits and addictions. There's always some legitimate need in their soul. It needs to be met. It's a good need, but they're trying to meet that legitimate need in an illegitimate way. And that's why they're falling prey to a bad habit or an addiction. It's really easy to to illustrate that. Think about um, the guy who struggles with pornography. What is going on ultimately? What is the the legitimate need? Well, there's there's lots of possible options. It, It could be that what he really needs is intimacy. Guess what? Everyone does. It's a good need God created within us, a need to connect deeply with someone. What's the hard thing about intimacy? It takes sacrifice. It takes time. It takes effort. And so what is this guy doing? He's choosing the easy path. He's choosing the substitute to fill that need, and it's going to destroy him. Or maybe he's giving in because he's just crazy stressed. And for a moment, giving into this sin dulls the pain of stress. Well, we need peace. We need to fill that, that hole in us when we feel stressed, but there's only one place to turn, and that's God. Instead, he's hitting the eject button. He's choosing the easy substitutes that'll destroy him. Maybe it's he, he just really needs to feel valuable and desirable. And for some reason, looking at that on the screen makes him feel that way. Well, that's actually a legitimate need. He's feeling it in an illegitimate way, but it's legit. What does he need to do? He needs to recognize what I really need is to feel valued and desired. And guess what? That's how God thinks about you. You need to find your identity in God and fill that hole in you. Anything you struggle with, whether it's drugs on one end to an addiction to criticism and bitterness on the other end, there is some legitimate need within you that God can satisfy, but you are turning to some illegitimate way to satisfy it. And that's what's fueling the addiction, fueling the bad habit. If you can discover what is the legitimate need and begin to fill it in a legitimate way, then that bad habit or addiction will have far less power over you. So when I counsel men who are struggling with a bad habit or addiction, whatever it is, one of the things that I challenge them to think about and and recognize is that in overcoming this sinful addiction, what is actually most important is not the bad behavior to avoid, but good things to add to your life. 
I want to change his paradigm. Because if all he ever focuses on what not to do, what's he going to do? He's going to do it because that's all he's thinking about. No, what I need to do is I need to help him see, no, there's some reason you're giving into this. There's some deep hole in your soul that we need to fill in a good way. Maybe what you need is to be inspired to catch a vision for what your life could mean. Let's talk to you about missions. Let's talk to you about service in the community. Let's find your spiritual gifts. Let's get you plugged in doing something that has eternal impact on real people in need so that you can live an exciting life. Then that sin is going to be far less appealing. Or maybe it's you need deep fellowship with other guys who you can be honest and vulnerable with. And all of a sudden, as you have that deep friendship with these other men, this sin is far less appealing. Okay, so focus on good things to fill those legitimate holes in you. And the, the sinful temptations will be far less powerful. Does that make sense? Okay, so find and fill the legitimate holes in you. Third practical step. Eliminate the triggers. Every habit, every addiction has its triggers. One or more. For, for an alcoholic, it may be the sound of ice hitting the bottom of a whiskey glass. Just, something, just a sound and boom, it triggers actual craving. That all their sensors in their mind are lighting up to go down that, that habitual path. For the guy struggling with, or girl struggling with pornography, it may be holding a cell phone at 11 p.m. at night when you're alone. Man, it gets you thinking about something you want to avoid. Well, here's the deal. If you can eliminate the trigger that kicked off that biological craving inside of you, then it makes it a whole lot easier to say no to sin. I like to think of it this way. Picture a mountain covered in snow. Is that snowball starts to roll from the top, it's really small. It's not moving very fast yet. It doesn't have much momentum. It's easy to stop at the top, right? But what about when it gets to the bottom? Well, now it's huge and it's moving really fast and it has a ton of momentum and you try to stop it there and it is incredibly difficult. So what do you need to do to stop the snowball from hitting the bottom? Well, stop it at the trigger phase. Stop it way up at the top. It's much easier there. So for the, for the alcoholic, well, you're going to need to avoid being in a bar where you hear ice hitting a glass or watching shows that have a lot of drinking in them because you're hearing that you're getting that auditory stimulation that's getting you kicked off towards giving in. For the guy or girl struggling with pornography, you, you need to not have the phone in your hand at 11 p.m. Your phones need to be off and charging in a public spot in the house so that you've eliminated that trigger. Now, that's not foolproof because we don't get to control all the circumstances in our life. We still have to say no, even when the trigger strikes, but you greatly increase the odds of success if you can cut off temptation at the trigger phase rather than when it's built up ahead of steam. Okay, so cut it off at the trigger whenever possible. Fourth and final step, we need to stop defining ourselves by our addictions. As the men go back to prepare communion, let me explain this one to you. And in some ways, this is the most important point as you think about addiction and habits. The deal with bad habits and addictions is that we typically feel ashamed of them. That's very common. And we try to hide them. And when something makes you feel ashamed and you hide it, it grows in power in your mind. And eventually you begin to see yourself as defined by your bad habit or addiction. And as soon as you see yourself defined by it, you've given it so much power in your life. So I'll give you an example of kind of where, this, where the rubber hits the road. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. Many of you are familiar with it. I think it's a great program. You've probably seen enough on TV to kind of have a sense of what happens at an AA meeting. Um, one of the common features, you've seen this, is at some point in the meeting, somebody's going to get up and share their story. So they walk to the front of the room, and how do they start their story? Hello, I'm Bob, and I'm an alcoholic. Now, that's good in that Bob just confessed what he struggles with. 
He's honest. That was step number one. He's open about it. That's excellent. That's really good. However, we have to think carefully about what Bob just said. Bob just said, I'm defined by my name and my addiction. Is that true? Well, no. What is Bob? Well, if he's human, which I'm assuming, then the number one thing about Bob is he's made in the image of God. That is the most important thing about both believers and unbelievers. Trumps everything else. We're made in the image of God. And if Bob is a believer, then not only is he made in the image of God, but he is a child of God, forgiven of God, and beloved of God. And all of that is more important than the fact that Bob is an alcoholic. So it's fine that Alcoholics Anonymous works that way, but let's just recognize that when we stand up in front of somebody and say what we are, well, far more accurate would be for Bob to stand up and say, hello, I'm Bob. I'm a child of God, beloved by God, forgiven of God, made in the image of God, and I'm also an alcoholic. That's the right way to look at it. What it matters most is your identity as an image bearer who's a child of God, and your addiction or habit is under that. So please don't let your addiction or your habit define you. It never does. Never. Always what's more important is that you are a child of God made in the image of God. That is who and what you are. That's what we celebrate when we take communion. We are remembering that when Jesus died on the cross, he was not dying for 999 failures. When when Jesus died on the cross, he wasn't saying, well, I will take upon myself 999 times that you get drunk, 999 times that you strike out in criticism towards a friend, 999 times that you look at pornography. I'll take that, but you get to 1,000 and you're on your own. That's not how it works. Jesus took every single sin you will ever commit. You don't even know them all. He took all of the times you will give into that bad habit. Every single time you will give into that addiction, he already took it upon himself, died for it, and rose from the dead to conquer it. And so that addiction or that bad habit will never define you. You need to take responsibility for it, but don't let it become your identity or you've just given it an incredible amount of power that does not belong to it. First and foremost, you are made in the image of God. And if you know Jesus, if you've trusted in him as your savior, then you are a child of God, forgiven of God, beloved of God, and nothing will ever change that no matter what addictions you give into. And that's the good news that we celebrate in communion as the men come forward. While you take of these elements of communion, what I want you to do is I want you to spend a moment reflecting on the reality of what Jesus did when he died for you, that by dying for you, he took every sin you would ever commit, even those bad habit sins, those addiction sins, those shameful sins, he took them all and he died to pay the price of them and he rose from the dead to conquer them. And I want you to just say thank you. Take a few minutes and just reflect on the fact that your primary identity is not your addiction or bad habits. It's the fact that you're a child of God, beloved and forgiven, no matter what you ever do. Let's take a moment to say thank you. On the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this every time you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, we praise you and we thank you 
that you did not die for some of our sins, but for all of our sins. We thank you and we praise you that, that as we walk through this life, we can walk in confidence, knowing that we are already forgiven, that there is absolutely nothing that can keep us from your saving love. There's nothing, Heavenly Father, that will keep us from belonging in your family, and we praise you for that. We thank you for the security that we have. We pray that in that security, we would learn to obey, not of a sense of fear or guilt, but but because we want to better follow Jesus. We want to show the world the good that comes when we follow Jesus' example. Now, Lord, we pray that you would be at work in each of us, that you would help us to walk out of here with practical ideas about things we can do this week to begin to to build and strengthen godly habits in our lives and and weaken and turn away from sinful habits in our lives. We pray, Lord, for for all of us here. We we know all of us struggle to some extent with bad habits, with addictions, some with mighty ones that are exercising incredible power and destruction in their lives. We pray, Lord, for their peace, for their healing, for their hope. We pray, Lord, that Grace Bible Church would be the kind of church where people who are addicted love to come because they find hope and they find love and they find healing and they are are challenged and encouraged to walk in newness of life. We pray, Lord God, help us to live that out. Help us to model that. Through the power of your spirit, we praise you that there is always hope. In the name and for the glory of your son, Jesus, we pray. Now, if you'll stand, let's respond together in worship.